whole brain emulation, mind uploading, that is something that is a logical consequence of a successful neuroscience. Then you have to look in more detail at your philosophical reasons for thinking one thing or another, and why do some people feel okay with it and some don't. And then you end up coming down to something where you realize, oh, those aren't really based on any evidence at all. They're based on beliefs. I think that we understand the brain enough today, we can preserve a brain or an entire body so that if neuroscience is successful in the future, that preserved person would be able to be revived as a emulated copy. I see this as sort of a understanding ourselves and a launch point for what I guess I think of as a kind of Cambrian explosion of new ways that we can develop and that human culture can develop, not just by itself, but also sort of in cohesion with this whole ecosystem of intelligences that we're developing along the way. Why don't other neuroscientists talk about this? And the answer, that, as, as far as I can see, is that... This is Brain Inspired. Greetings, friends. Today I have on two neuroscientists, Randall Kern and Ken Hayworth, who, in addition to being neuroscientists, are both interested in mind uploading, and they devote a lot of their cognitive resources to figuring out how we can go from where we are now to uploading our minds. Randall Kern does this through his carboncopies.org organization that he co-founded, and their goal is to advance building substrate-independent minds. In other words, minds that run on stuff that isn't brains. And to do this, Randall and his colleagues are seeking to implement whole brain emulation. That's also what Ken Hayworth is interested in. Uh, Ken is a neuroscientist at Janelia Research Campus, where he does cutting-edge electron microscopy to look at the fine structure and connections of nervous systems. And he's scaling that up to larger and larger brains, larger and larger brain volumes. Ken is also the president of the Brain Preservation Foundation, and their goal is to uh, preserve brains. Um, More specifically, it's to preserve the structure in brains down to a level that would be necessary to eventually um, implement whole brain emulation. So that's the central idea here. And both Randall and Ken uh, know that this is a long-term project. So during this episode, we cover some of the current issues that they talk about uh, and that they're working on. And there are so many of those issues that um, we really just scratched the surface here. But my main goal in the podcast was to introduce some of the ideas and um, hit on some of the issues. But it's worth uh, me probably just summarizing the two main approaches that uh, are thought to be the best approaches to pursue whole brain emulation from where we stand now. One is called uh, scan and copy, and the other is called gradual replacement. So scan and copy is when someone dies, you can perfuse their brain with uh, a solution and uh, preserve it so that later you can actually slice the brain up, like brains are sliced up in electron microscopy. In doing so, you can scan the entirety of the brain structure down to subcellular levels. And what you would end up with then is an entire scan of someone's brain. 
And the idea is, is that uh, we hang on to that scan until our technology advances to the point that we can use the structural information to create a whole brain emulation in some other substrate. So that's one idea. You scan the brain and then you essentially copy it into a whole brain emulation functioning mind. The other gradual replacement would basically seek to replace little parts of your brain uh, and replace their function. So let's say you could put a prosthetic hippocampus in one day for, with one surgery, such that you retain your memories and your ability to remember and spatially navigate and all those other functions that the hippocampus performs for us that we continue <laughs> to learn. But uh, then you go on and you have another surgery next Tuesday where you replace your prefrontal cortex and on and on and on until gradually you replace all of the parts of your brain and your mind is still constituted. Uh, but by now your brain is basically a replacement made of different parts like little computers, etc. Those are very simplified descriptions uh, of what we talk more about including, you know, all the surrounding issues that, <laughs> that are related to that. There's a lot to think about. So there are a lot of links in the show notes. Of course, I, I link to carboncopies.org and brainpreservation.org. So those are the two main websites, but also other links to various talks uh, and related content. That's at braininspired.co slash podcast slash 103. Uh, also on the website, you can support the show through Patreon. The little Patreon supporter Discord group that I recently started has gotten more and more active and fun lately. Uh, I'm continuing to figure out how to make that more useful and enjoyable for everyone, but there's been a lot of back and forth there. Anyway, that's one thing you get when you support the podcast through Patreon. So thank you to those of you already tossing a few dollars toward the podcast through Patreon. All right, this is obviously a, a fun and exciting topic and uh, it's really exciting that serious scientists like Randall and Ken uh, are working on these things, and uh, it was really a joy to talk to them. So here they are. I thought I'd start by asking you, you know, a broad overview, what is it that each of you want, you know, with respect to brain preservation, with respect to whole brain, whole brain emulation and mind uploading, and uh, why personally that, that you want it? Ken, maybe we'll start with you here. So I'm a uh, uh, I'm a neuroscientist. Uh, I spend my days uh, uh, building uh, electron microscope um, uh, machines to map uh, brain tissue at the synaptic level. So at 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 some level, I am deeply committed to neuroscience being successful. It is difficult for me to to be this embedded as a as a neuroscientist and pushing forward the field of connectomics and and at some level not contemplate what this is going to lead to in 100 years and 200 years and 300 years. So that's I think that's sums it up mostly but uh very particularly and this is where I think the vast majority of people disagree with me. I think that we understand the brain enough today to be reasonably sure of how uh, memory and function are encoded in the in the nervous system, and to know that we can, using techniques that are common in neuroscience, that we could preserve uh, a brain or an entire body so that if neuroscience is successful in the future, if the technologies continue to develop, that preserved person would be able to be revived as a emulated copy uh, of their brain in in the future. So that's uh, uh, you know 
in at one level, if there wasn't a thing called brain preservation, if that was not an option, then all of this would be completely academic to me. It would be kind of like uh, you know, if I was building rockets, uh, I would I might casually say, oh, well, I'm building rockets because one of these days we're going to colonize Mars, but I'm going to be dead by the time we do that. So I'm just going to, you know, focus on building some rockets today uh, because, you know, I'm okay with this having, you know, the, the you know, the future is out there and, and I have no connection with it. But uh, I think neuroscientists can definitely get into that mode today without realizing that, hey, there is an implication today. We do have, we certainly don't have any anywhere near the technology to upload anybody today. That is off the table for probably at least 100 years. But we certainly do have the technology to preserve people uh, today uh, in a way that uh, most likely would allow them to be uploaded in the future. That's pretty much what I want out of this. And, and why do you personally want it when you want to be re-uploaded to do what? So I have always wanted to uh, experience the future. You know, uh, when I was, uh, when you asked, you know, how did I get into this stuff? I mean, I, I got into this stuff by, uh, um, uh, you know, when I was, I don't know, 12, uh, you know, I was dreaming about traveling to, uh, to space, building rockets. Um, you know, I wanted to explore other stars. And when I, when I dug into that, I found out, uh, uh, when I dug into the science, I found out how very difficult it is to get a human being to another star. It's almost mm. impossible. And it's certainly impossible within uh, a lifetime. And, and then for some reason, I was reading some neural network books around that time. When you're 12, you were 12 reading. Uh, when I was 12, yeah, there was there was some books out there that was very low level, popular type of stuff, uh, but it, uh, it it made clear that we are just information that is stored in the nervous system, and it's like a light went off in my head that said, "Oh, if we're information, then we can potentially travel at the speed of light. So we shouldn't be designing rocket engines to take." 100 kilogram human beings across the uh, to other star systems, we should be figuring out how to copy that information so that it can be put on a on a laser beam and beamed to the next star system. And that's really, it almost immediately switched me from reading all these um, books on uh, fusion propulsion and antimatter propulsion and all this other stuff that I was I was reading at the time is switched me over to, into looking at uh, at neuroscience and I've never gone back. And and I, I guess by twelve you had already read uh, Einstein's relativity work as well and and realized that uh, uh, I was a yeah. very stupid twelve year old. Uh, you have no idea. <laughs> I'm, I'm still I'm still catching up so much. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, that's great. I mean, it's gosh, every every line that you guys are going to say is just going to make me want to stop and open up, you know, the whole can of worms. But I'm going to try to be disciplined here. So, Randall, well, I'm going to ask the same thing about you. What is it that you want and, and why? Yeah, I think what I want is in many ways very similar to what Ken just said. So I don't think I have any major disagreements, except that I did discover that there is a slightly different motivation or at least a different way that I make my decisions about the motivations involved. Uh, so by the way, I think just so that we can put that off to the side, I completely agree with this notion of space travel, that it is ridiculous to think that we're going to send, you know, spaceships full of humans living in oxygen bubbles, making their way across the galaxy, 
that makes no sense. You can see today that we're sending robots everywhere for a reason, because they're adapted to that environment. So that's the same thing you're going to get eventually, right? And at that point, it is also not essential whether or not that's traveling near the speed of light, because if you're adapted to those distances, you're also adapted to the time it takes to travel those distances. You're thinking beyond Mars, <laughs> because beyond within, Mars, within our solar yeah, system. Yeah. yeah, I mean, look, if you if you think about it in the grand scale of things, you know, the amount of time available in the universe, even if you have to travel a million years to get to the next galaxy, that's not an enormous chunk of the available time, you know, if you can make it. So I'm just saying, we can think about time differently as well, if you're thinking about a different kind of embodiment. Yeah. So, and actually, this gets to my my main reason for wanting this. I regard this as, uh, you know, Ken also said this is kind of the end point of where neuroscience is going, and it's we have to actually look at that and realize that. Um, but I also think that it has extreme value for the culture that we've created and what we care about, in a sense, right? Um, because I think that this is similar to how we are exploring the genome. It's to understand our blueprint and not just so that we know what's going on in there, but also so that we can tweak and fine tune as necessary to overcome certain problems or limitations or to achieve new possibilities. So, um, why should we be stuck with memory that isn't real? You know, where we're just reconstructing something according to certain patterns that we've learned and so we can only see things that we think are already plausible because that's the context we were exposed to when we were young and that sort of thing. Or why should we only be able to experience the universe in a way where, say, a tenth of a second is the smallest time interval that we can comprehend and respond to? All that sort of stuff. And more, of course, you know. So sure. I see this I see this as sort of a understanding ourselves and a launch point for for what I guess I think of as a kind of Cambrian explosion of new ways that we can develop and that human culture can develop, not just by itself, but also sort of in cohesion with this whole ecosystem of intelligences that we're developing along the way. That's part of it. And I think that ties back into sort of the way that I see what I like about life. Like if I choose things that, that I care about versus things that I don't care so much about, I often make that decision based on what I think of as, say, making ripples in, you know, in the future. So things that you do that don't make ripples, they can be cool, they can be fun, sure, I don't mind experiencing them, but they're, they're not as valuable to me as the things that do cause a ripple, that cause some kind of change going forward. I don't know exactly why that is. Nothing has an objective purpose, right? Right. So I, it's not better or anything. It's just how I see, seem to personally experience value. Uh, I consider like, you know, so I have kids. My children could be considered ripples into the future because if I give them a good shot at things, then they may cause further ripples, right? And if, uh, I can help inspire people to care about whole brain emulation and to reach a technology level where we are no longer bound to a specific embodiment and we can expand and extend in various ways, that will cause, hopefully, some ripples that do something into the future. You know, whereas many other things I could do don't. So, interestingly, that's, I think, where I depart from from what Ken said, because Ken said at some point that um, 
if brain preservation wasn't possible, then it would be meaningless. I don't see that at all. I think even if there was no brain preservation, though I like the idea uh, because I'd love to be there, um, I'd still do it. You know, just like someone in the early industrial age trying to develop the things that caused the industrial age to explode, uh, or the space age, or the computer age, or whatever. And I sort of see this as the same sort of thing. Well, can you? Could, I was I was a little surprised when you talked about brain preservation in that manner as well, because um, under the umbrella of whole brain emulation, the the two main approaches that you guys talk about, one of them is uh, brain preservation method, and then reconstituting, scanning, and 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 then uh, doing a whole brain emulation through the scan and knowing the structure and inferring function and, and et cetera. And the other uh, major approach that you guys discuss is you know a gradual replacement uh, approach where you figure out like the the function of some cluster of something in the brain and then you can replace it with a little machine or model uh, and then you do that over time and you and you gradually replace uh, brains although Randall what you were just discussing seemed to suggest that what you're exp- what you're interested in is different types of experiences and and different dynamics of those experiences and I don't know if you're a deadhead I just recently watched a Grateful Dead uh, documentary uh, whom I, I never enjoyed but you know that the whole uh, psychotropic, you know, psychedelic experience also kind of uh, different types of experiences are seem to be what a lot of people are interested in, and we're, we're really um, as humans, we have this very narrow possibility of scope. I feel like within our own, you know, subjective experience of time and how we experience time, uh, and our own bodily experiences and how we view the world, sensations, etc. But so, so maybe can I? Before I just continue to ramble, um, maybe you can answer his his uh, his uh, volley to you. Well, I was saying something very specific. I'm not saying that uh, it's useless to um, uh, to work on whole brain emulation, even though it's a long term goal. I I think that it's obviously incredibly useful. So, for instance, uh, you know, I'm I. I you know, if I had stayed in in uh, in in space propulsion, I would probably be fine working on uh, on fusion designs, uh, even though those fusion designs may not uh, come about for another hundred years, and I would be long dead before uh, it it ever uh, happened. The reason why I bring that this up is because uh, you know what's unique about uh, Randall and I is that we are out there and vocal about the idea that whole brain emulation, mind uploading, that is something that is a logical consequence of a successful neuroscience. Mm-hmm. And so the the next question to ask is, why are you only vocal? What's, uh, what's with all these other neuroscientists? Uh, I mean, uh, uh, you must be, and 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 a, a a person outside the neuroscience community, looking at this, would say, okay, um, I would assume, would say, uh, you know, Ken Randall, they must have some crazy theory that uh, that any neuroscientist would bash down in a minute, because we all know that neuroscientists don't touch this topic with a ten foot pole. Well, they want to get funded. <laughs> uh, or, or maybe they won't get funded, or something like that. Yeah. But, uh, but in matter of fact, and correct me if I'm wrong, Randall, we are holding to the 
textbook models probably better than most neuroscientists. You know, we're not pushing oh, our yeah. radical theory. We're saying this is, you know, we want the consensus view. We want to know exactly what the consensus view of the last, you know, decades and decades and decades of neuroscience are so that we can better project into the future uh, what the consequences are. And we come back a time and again that this is a logical consequence of of uh, of neuroscience. Uh, so the question comes back to why don't other neuroscientists talk about this? And the answer that as as far as I can see is that because mind uploading is we are not going to see anything close to that for decades and decades possibly centuries and centuries. The mind is so complex. The brain is so complex. We are just beginning this journey of neuroscience. Ask any neuroscientist and they will, they will say this over and over again. We, there's so much we don't understand about the brain. There is so much complexity there. There's, our tools are so primitive in terms of, of, of getting to the circuitry and how it works. And uh, that is the excuse that they give to not rile up the public over something like uh, the possibility of mind uploading. And, and, and I would agree with that. To the perspective of why wild people up because they're going to be dead anyway. You know, let's talk about it <laughs> internally. Let's work on it. Let's understand, put our work in perspective, but let's not rile up the public. And, and if brain preservation was taken out of the picture, that would be good enough. It would be, yes, this is a possibility in the future. Everybody agrees that this is a possibility in the future, but we're not going to get there. There's a lot of work uh, to get from where we are now to there. And it's it, it doesn't make a lot of sense talking about colonizing Alpha Centauri when you haven't set foot on Mars yet, right? Mm -hmm. And brain preservation changes changes that dynamic because brain preservation is something that we could be doing today. We could be doing it correctly given all that we know about neuroscience, but we have decided as a society that that is also a taboo topic, presumably because it's too futuristic, which is absolutely illogical. And and that's why I keep coming back to it. You, you say that we could be doing it today, but in fact, I mean, we, quote unquote, you are doing it today. I mean, there's there have been prizes uh, awarded for this. You know, kind of what I wanted to do, <laughs> just for not knowing exactly what to talk about, I wanted to come. I wanted it to take its own pathway, but I thought we might start about you know what what is known or what you guys are confident about what we can accomplish right now with the current technology and our with our our current understanding and and maybe why you're confident about it. And I don't know, maybe maybe just the brain, the glutaraldehyde preservation technique is something to start with if you want to give a broad overview of that, maybe, uh, and then we can. Move yeah, forward. let me let me just put this in perspective. So. So the idea of cryonics has been around for since at least the 1960s. Okay, uh, the the scientific community has looked at cryonics and said very clearly, we don't think that cryonics works because it has not demonstrated the ability to preserve those structures of the brain that are obviously necessary uh, for any type of future revival. So the, the baseball player Ted Williams is cry, cryogenically preserved, I think, right? So he's he's a goner, though, probably. Uh, we we don't know, yeah. but the 
what I'm saying is that there has been a skeptical argument that is rationally based in science for decades that the cryonics community uh, had not ever addressed adequately and still has not addressed adequately. Okay, uh, that is the so so. For instance, if you look at um, uh, a skeptic like Michael Shermer, you know he would write in Scientific American that uh, you know uh, people that are putting their faith in cryonics, they don't realize the amount of damage that is occurring uh, to the brain in a cryonics person, and they're putting all their faith in some you know, essentially uh, magical technology of nanotechnology to uh, uh, to repair just about anything. And and as a good skeptic, Michael Shermer would say, I'm skeptical of that. Air quotes. He gave, Ken just gave air quotes. There you go. I, there you go. There's yeah. no video, so I have to do some, some play-by-play. <laughs> Thank <Yeah>. you. <laughs> so um, about 10 years ago, I came into that kind of discussion, that skeptical discussion, and said, dude, I'm a neuroscientist. I do electron microscopy every day. Okay, we look at synapses every day. Uh, at the very least, we should be able to determine how good a preservation occurred. And as neuroscientists, we should probably have some tricks up our sleeves to to say, uh, uh, you know, how well a preservation could be done. And so that was the genesis of this uh, brain preservation prize. That was a $100,000 prize to either the cryonics community or anybody else that could demonstrate that they could preserve the uh, synaptic connectivity of a brain in a static state for at least 100 years. And and I, I, I literally thought of this as, uh, as on par with... Um, uh, James Randi's uh, prize. You know, it's like, you know, a, a good skeptic does not dismiss something. A good skeptic says, uh, steel mans the argument, steel mans it instead of straw mans it, steel mans the argument and says, okay, show me this and then I will believe you. And of course, the James Randi paranormal prize that went unanswered for years and years and years because there's no such thing as paranormal behavior. So but, far. But something like this cryonics uh, challenge, I thought, you know, this is something that is, it's a technological challenge. So let's put it out there. And uh, the, the unfortunately, the cryonics community is still working on it. And I'm still in communications with people that say that they are still working on it. And they really believe that they are going to be able to show in published papers in the coming years that uh, that the current chronics protocols are preserving the connectome. I am, am very enthusiastic that they are continuing to do that work, but again, they haven't shown it. So that's all I can say about that. But there was a technique that came out of a cross between cryobiology and uh, uh, glutaraldehyde perfusion fixation that's used in neuroscience research or memory, uh, there was a, a, a technique that came out of the cross of those two that actually did win our prize. And that's called aldehyde-stabilized cryopreservation. Uh, it was um, uh, invented by a guy named uh, Robert McIntyre. And it is a very straightforward technique that uses uh, chemical fixation of the brain uh, with aldehyde fixatives, and then follows that up with cryoprotectant perfusion at room temperature, very 
similar to chronics, but very different from chronics in the sense that because the brain is stabilized with aldehydes to begin with, uh, you can uh, have a much longer room temperature uh, thorough perfusion of the cryoprotectant agents. That allows you to get the brain to a, um, uh, a state that can be lowered in temperature to minus 130 degrees Celsius uh, without any ice crystal formation, and it can stay there forever uh, if you want. They did this on rabbit brains. They did this on pig brains. Uh, Michael Shermer and I went to their facility to witness uh, because he was on the uh, the prize committee. He was kind of our resident skeptic, if uh-huh. you will, he, he, what he likes to call uh, a devil's advocate. Uh, so we went there. We witnessed them preserving a rabbit. Uh, we picked up uh, pig brains. I brought them back to uh, to my laboratory and did a very thorough electron microscopy on them. Uh, they had been preserved, stored at low temperature, brought back up, and then uh, e- evaluated. All the synaptic connections look fine. Uh, it looks like textbook preservation of the ultrastructure of synapses and neurons. Uh, but farther than that, we know that glutaraldehyde fixation is preserving a wide range of biomolecules. If you're interested in uh, the receptor proteins or the ion channels, um, those are being preserved. How do we know that? Because we have 50 years of of neuroscience papers that have used aldehyde fixation uh, and then done uh, molecular analysis afterwards. So, so the current state of the art for brain preservation is that we know for a fact that if we wanted to preserve human brains, we could perfuse people with glutaraldehyde uh, fixative. We could uh, perfuse them with a uh, cryoprotectant agent afterwards, and we could store them at liquid nitrogen, uh, not liquid nitrogen, we could store them at minus 130 degrees Celsius at the vitrification point, and they would stay constant forever. And we know that um, that, that technique verifiably preserves the entire brain, uh, uh, no cracks, no uh, no damage to the ultrastructure, and it preserves the the vast majority of the molecular information in the brain. These are simply facts that are existing now, and they they won the prize. Uh, obviously, I thought that would change the mind of skeptics uh, because again, it was a steel man. You know, is like okay, this is what you've been mm-hmm. asking for all along. And, and, you know, the, the idea that you can preserve those things, those things are the things that neuroscience textbooks say you would have to preserve in order to have a, a reasonably good chance of, of, uh, of reviving somebody through whole brain emulation in the future. Unfortunately, the, uh, the world, you know, went on. It's like, oh, yeah, we can preserve <laughs> brains. So what? <laughs> There's no social consequence of that. Uh, and, and yet the neuroscience community, and I talk to every neuroscience I, neuroscientist I can on this, uh, ask them, what am I missing? What am I missing? You know, and uh, they, they don't say that I'm missing anything. They don't say this technique doesn't work. They don't say this technique doesn't preserve these crucial things that the textbooks say need to be preserved. So that is the current state of the of the situation. It's kind of like, yes, we have an ability uh, to preserve uh, exactly what 
neuroscience thinks would have to be preserved. And yet we have decided as a society to completely ignore this possibility. Randall, do I have it right that you, um, thanks Ken for the description, that's one of the main ways uh, to make progress in whole brain emulation. Uh, and the idea there would be you, you know, eventually, however many hundred years, I don't, timeline doesn't matter. Uh, although I know it's always very important to people to ask, like, when is this going to happen? But it actually doesn't matter. <laughs> if it works yep. well, it doesn't matter. Um, but then the idea would be eventually uh, to use that the structure, scan it, uh, and 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 then, you know, build it in into a new system. The idea is not to reanimate the old body, uh, essentially, although the, we could talk about that as well. But for whole brain emulation, the idea is to use the structural information to reconstitute uh, the functional uh, connectome as well. And then you'd have a, essentially a mind that you could then implement in some other hardware or some other substrate, what what uh, Randall's called calling, you know, substrate independent mind, right? Randall, do I have do I have it right that you formerly were, if you had to choose sides, I suppose, were on the gradual um, replacement uh, s approach to whole brain emulation, and you've come around a little bit to the brain preservation alternative technique. Yeah, that's probably a slightly sim sort of. We, get, we uh, have to be simplistic here it, on the show. It's, it's a simplified way yeah. of looking at it. It's yeah. that's not really where I was coming from. Okay. Um, we still uh, talk about both methods: gradual mm -hmm. replacement or scan and copy, and we do so for a very particular reason. Uh, we do that because, first of all, uh, the two are uh, are the kinds of things that people think about and come to us with and need to be thought through from a philosophical point of view to kind of explore, is there really any difference, which in our opinion, there isn't in terms of the outcome, you know, if you could do both of them. But the other reason is that the gradual replacement approach, it is something that uh, ties directly into um, how work has been done in vivo in neuroscience so far, how in vivo data is collected and how models are constructed based on what we observe in vivo by recording from the activity of neurons in certain contexts, in a behavioral context, for example. And uh, in that sense, it gives you this connection, right, between the data you collect and something mm -hmm. that is actually a working brain that has a mind that has cognitive function. And, and this connection is important because when you're talking about whole brain emulation, of course, you want to eventually get from the data back to a working thing, right? And so we can talk about very abstract terms there that are important, like scale separation. Is there a level at which we can do scale separation? What is the evidence for it? Or resolution of data. What data do you need to collect in order to reconstruct something that works? Um, or the representation of information in neural systems. And is that a robust representation or not? So these sorts of things are explored using models that are based on dynamics or based on in vivo recording and so forth. Now, gradual replacement as a theoretical exercise for mind uploading is something that you can certainly contemplate. But I really think that from a practical point of view, there are only two places where it applies. One is in the immediate here and now in terms of these very small investigations, let's say mm. neuroprosthetic or understanding how a piece of the brain works, exploring what is necessary to create a working brain, that part of it, and then far future, you know, <laughs> beyond where scan and copy would be possible. Because 
to do that in vivo to replace all your neurons <laughs> or or to build do that in a in a sensible way where it's not way more risky would be uh that's way far ahead because imagine i mean just imagine you know people worry about uh, what it's like to undergo scan and copy as a procedure towards mind uploading and then they worry about things like personal identity which is a whole other topic we can get into yep but you know in terms of preserving what's there there's a really good protocol in terms of scanning what's there, obtaining data from it, there's a very good protocol using electron microscopy and and perhaps also detecting some other things like proteins of various kinds. And then there's just that gap where we still need to understand how to transform this sort of sculpture that you create from that yeah. three-dimensional reconstruction into something that works, right? Which is where you need to do uh, correlation, say, between what we've learned about the functions of the parts and what we can observe in the recording we've made in the structure. It's always normal that what we, what we record, the things we measure are not actually the same things that go into the parameters of our model when we build something that works. We always have to make a transformation. So there's something really good there. There's a good procedure that, you know, you can imagine that within a few decades, you can do that for perhaps a Drosophila brain and then a few decades more for another brain and eventually human brains. But gradually replacing all the neurons or, say, pieces of your brain over and over until it's all, all, uh, all artificial, imagine all those surgeries. <laughs> imagine the risk involved, even if you had the technology to put in there. So it's, a, it's not a practical approach in the near term. Maybe someday, you know, the same future that the cryonicists are hoping for when all the nanobots are there, in that future, you can imagine doing that procedure as a way of achieving mind uploading. I mean, maybe by then everyone's used to the other approach anyway, so then they're not worried about it. <laughs> but you, then you can imagine it. So really near term, very far term. But for the, the actual feasibility of, say, the first whole brain emulation, that, in my opinion, is a scan and copy approach. I just want to jump off at every moment and, and uh, talk about what may be people's biggest uh, resistance to these ideas, which are metaphysical concerns and concerns about souls and and personal identity and and awareness and subjective experience, and and I hope hope that we do get there. But but let's continue along the kind of science lines first of you know what what can be known. I mean, so in any problem, you know, there are things that we know or that we're confident about, um, and like you were just describing. Can with the brain preservation, the ability to uh, preserve the structural components at least as well as we think, as uh, current textbooks uh, suggest, you know, are, is enough to preserve the information of our memories, etc. In in these sorts of problems as well, there's a bunch of stuff that we know that we don't know, and I know there's a a huge bucket uh, within the whole brain emulation road mapping exercises of things that we don't know. Uh, and and you know they have like various time frames associated with them, and then of course there are the unknown unknowns, which we can uh, thank you know Donald Rumsfeld for um, most recently at least using that term. Mm. But it is a thing, uh, you know, and maybe we can talk a little bit by way of like some of the many issues. I mean, Randall, uh, you mentioned already, you know, there's the issue of scale separation. What is the right scale of uh, of modeling that we need to do? We need to model the ion channels. Do we need to model down to the uh, you know string theoretical <laughs> entities, or can we model just a certain brain region? Can we treat that as a black box? Right? There's all these different levels of of scale separation. Um, you know, there's the, the the problem of what hardware to run it on. 
uh, potentially? Do we need, you know, some neuromorphic hardware or can we just, you know, run it via uh, simulations or, or, or be, you know, constituted in models in von Neumann type computers? Um, where does brain computer face, you know, interact with, with these different issues? And we've already talked about the brain preservation, you know, which is one of the big issues. And I don't, I, I could spend the rest of the time just listing all of these issues that you guys have workshops uh, that you, and and then you touch on all things, all these sorts of things. And and um, so that it doesn't get lost in this, I, I just want to say like the workshops that you guys conduct through carbon copies, and and the roadmaps that you have to continue to come back to. Uh, it, it's a brilliant thing because this is a huge, huge project, and this keeps all of the pieces from straying too far, right? So it keeps all yep. the pieces together and you have to revisit them all the time. And I think that's such an advantage for something as massively large of a project where there are so many unknowns. So in that sense, like roadmaps seem to be an important aspect of huge projects like this. Do, do you think that that is a real advantage of the roadmap uh, approach? I, well, it's it's certainly necessary to work on a roadmap, although I don't think that what we really have right now that we could really call it a roadmap. Um, it's pieces, yeah. <laughs> it's pieces. Yeah, that's right. We're still putting them together. And I, I suspect that once we end up with something that we could call a first iteration of a roadmap, then, of course, it's going to iterate and iterate over and over again. The exercise is, is one of um, continually identifying the things that seem least well understood or least well described. It's about keeping ourselves honest. And it's also about making sure that, uh, that we're really concrete about the, the issues that, that are at hand, right? We don't want to be doing hand wavy stuff. And we don't want to do hand waving about technical problems, like how do you even scan something of that volume? Or, or how do you actually go from having something that is a structure to something that is a dynamic model, how do you do that? How do you validate that that model's correct? Because, I mean, everybody who makes models these days, the biggest problem is making a model that's correct because all models are wrong, all right? Models all are models wrong. are not yeah. correct. So you want to get it to be just barely not correct, but <laughs> only within the context that you care about. And so you need to describe the context you care about and everything else. So none of those things are deserve to be kind of glossed over or to be hand wavy about. And then there's the other side of stuff, you know, you're not allowed, you, we shouldn't be hand waving about um, other big statements either, you know, so we already slightly, we touched upon this, uh, this, you know, the cryonicists and how they believe that things are going to work in the future. The ones who don't want mind uploading, let's say, versus the ones who are okay with mind uploading. And, and Ken pointed out that probably the ones who are thinking, oh, I'm just going to walk here like uh, Steve Austin that they're thinking somehow that what they're going to be experiencing there is vastly different from what happens if you do an upload. Mm -hmm. But that's because they're hand-waving, right? They're just sort of not looking at the details, the concrete details of what's involved. And when you really think about what, would you, what you would have to do to make that happen, it turns out that maybe those processes are extraordinarily similar and that actually you're just adding on, you're tacking on this extra complication of then having to put it all back into biology after you've already built the upload, basically. Um, and similarly, when you talk about the difference between gradual uploading and scan and copy, and whether or not one is more or less likely to preserve your personal identity, it seems like a lot of the arguments that, that you know, are involved in those two camps, or in, in looking at it, those two different op possibilities, they are also hand-wavy. 
those arguments. And once you stop waving your hands around and you look in detail at what's going on, they both seem to have the same issues uh, at, a, at a small, detailed, sort of microscopic level. And that you probably either have to agree that both would work or both would not work. And then you have to look in more detail at your philosophical reasons for thinking one thing or another. And why do some people feel okay with it and some don't? And then you end up coming down to something where you realize, oh, these philosophical arguments where something is said about this is why it shouldn't work, those aren't really based on any evidence at all. They're based on beliefs. And you start discovering that that is not a scientific conversation. That is a conversation about people's beliefs in the absence of anything testable. So a lot of these workshops, as we drill down, and it's not just the workshops, it's also the projects that we do internally at Carbon Copies. They are about drilling down on specific things, either technical, philosophical, uh, and otherwise also just outreach, educational, and drilling down to where at least we discover uh, what we've been hand wavy about and how we should really look at it, and then trying to put it into words uh, or videos uh, so that others can also see that. I, I just want to add one thing to that. Um, I I think that the specific question of what level uh, would be necessary. If you look at the neuroscience community as it is working, it's day-to-day -day process, thousands of papers, thousands of discussions, thousands of models, uh, that is where this answer is, uh, the, our best guess. Uh, the neuroscience community really has a best guess at what the level would be. And uh, uh, from what I mean, I read this literature, the, uh, uh, the best guess is that firing neural activity is what encodes information in the brain. Duh, that's what we've been doing in recording, right? Uh, we have made the, the neuroscience community is able to very, uh, very readily look at um, uh, uh, multi-unit recording or calcium imaging and look at the firing patterns of neurons and say, this firing pattern means that the mouse is seeing this type of grading, or this firing pattern is uh, means that it's in this lo it thinks it's at this location in the maze, or this firing pattern uh, means that it is. Uh, about to take this particular action, or this firing pattern means that it's recalling this fearful memory when it was shocked. And we can manipulate those things and get the uh, the mouse to recall a memory, and et cetera. Mm -hmm. So there is real concrete experimental evidence that there is a level of representation at the firing patterns of neurons. If you go, uh, if you go into the theories of where those firing patterns come from and how they are, um, uh, how they are learned, how they're manipulated, how they function, uh, you get to models that talk about uh, neurons as having ion channels and having receptor proteins, uh, neurons that are connected to each other synaptically. The weights of the synapses and where they're connected is what is storing the information, is what is uh, encoding the learning. This is. This is bedrock neuroscience here. And so uh, I, I think as we're projecting into the future, there is a, a known level that is being assumed today. And the next question comes to, is that being assumed because it's, uh, it's easy to assume that, hmm. but there might be another level below it that's so complex that we haven't gotten to it yet? 
and and that's fine as well because there's a plenty of neuroscientists that are searching around at that sub-level to see if there's, oh, is there some uh, neural information that's actually being stored in particular confirmations of molecules? How is the learning being done, et cetera, et cetera. That is, so, so you can almost, I almost look at it this way. You have a standard level that textbook neuroscience is, and just regular neuroscience is, is assuming today. It might be the case that you could get away with a more abstract level for a whole brain emulation. And it might be the case that you have to go one level deeper, perhaps, but that gives you a range of, of uh, models that we should be looking at, that a, a rational person trying to decide what is possible uh, uh, would be constrained within. Uh, things that fall way outside of this are, for example, on the top side, there is no way that you're going to read off somebody's mind uh, uh, you know, my, um, upload somebody's mind uh, by MRI. It's not going to happen, <laughs> right? Uh, going down uh, uh, to a lower level, it, there's no way that uh, you need to know the confirmation of every protein or some kind of quantum mechanical effect uh, in order to capture the uh, the functioning of the mind. It is just way outside the bounds of what neuroscience has learned already on both sides. So I think this is a very concrete question that that really does not have to be talked about abstractly. Uh, it needs to be understood. And this is my, my the core thing that I would like your listeners to understand. The neuroscience community is working on mind uploading. Whether they admit it or not, they're working on mind uploading. It is a logical consequence. And everything with that they've learned already is uh, is something along that pathway that uh, that we're taking very seriously, and and I think other people should as well. Yeah, I'd love to jump right in there for a second because I think there is a point. Um, while I agree with everything that Ken said, I think there's a point where it's important to point out why maybe neuroscientists want to be cautious when they say things like, "But this is just what we know right now, and it's our current consensus, and this is how we're doing our experiments." But there could be more. And part of the reason is that every time when a scientific question is explored, and when we're doing that experimentally, we do it in a constrained context. So you have a rat that is running a certain maze or a rat that has to... Doing a task in a lab. Yeah. Right. So within that context, or if it's patients using a hippocampal neural prosthesis or something like that, it's always a constrained context. And in that constrained context, we can say, yes that all of the patterns that we're observing, these firing neurons firing together, it makes sense. We can make these correlations that every time when we see this happening, this correlates with that behavior. So there must be a relationship between those. But because the context is constrained and not the complete context oh. of everything a human mind can do in a normal everyday life, it is useful and correct to be careful and to say, we haven't actually explored the entire realm of how that works. So it's possible that there are some additional things, either sort of across the system emergent behavior or lower level mechanisms that are important, something that may still play a role that we don't currently yet understand, kind of like, you know, you know, Newtonian physics eventually had to give way to, you know, Einsteinian physics. There may be something like that. We don't know that for sure. But but there is a pretty strong consensus about the things that we have explored so far, and I don't necessarily expect there to be 
a hurdle like that. I don't know that there is. I haven't seen any evidence for it right now. And that's where, you know, I apply this Occam's razor principle, which is basically I'm not going to add something complicated to my theory unless there's a good reason for it. So, mm -hmm. for instance, I won't jump to quantum states and I won't jump to, you know, oh, it has to be done in hardware because integration information theory and because Tononi suddenly adds this caveat that you can't do it in software or something like that. You know, I'm not going to, or, or Miguel Nicolelis, who's kind of like, no, 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 it's going to, it's going to matter all the way down. All the like nonlinear analog connections, they're all going to matter all the way down. Um, I think in fact that for some of these, there are counter examples where you, at least you can make thought experiments where you can say it wouldn't make sense for those all to matter or for it to be that complicated. And part of it is just because the brain doesn't just exist as a weird philosophical exercise that nature did. It exists as the thing that was supposed to keep the body alive, right? And keep the genes continuing, right? Because it's all natural selection. So there has to be a certain robust function and you live in a world full of noise and you live in a world uh, full of, yeah, all sorts of unpredictable things that are happening in this gelatinous system that you have here. Um, so you can't have a system where you depend on details that would be so easily disrupted that the outcome is something that you may not survive, like uh, not recognizing something correctly or not responding correctly, mm -hmm. or even just not having good communication between different regions of your brain. They need to be able to communicate reliably. So you're going to do things like rely on entire populations of neurons or entire populations of synapses, bursts rather than spikes, lateral inhibition between... You know, neurons so that they, they separate their patterns, all that sort of stuff. All the kinds of things that you do if you want to make a device reliable. Just like we didn't cobble together analog computers by just putting a bunch of transistors together and then seeing how that whole analog thing works. No, we imposed a clock. We imposed ones and zeros. We imposed parity bits. We imposed all sorts of stuff to make it reliable. And I think that you're going to find that in the brain as well. Do you, since you mentioned uh, natural selection and, and brought up evolution, let's just go down that road for a moment. Um, one just worry that jumps out at me is, yes, so thinking about the robustness of brains, uh, they are extremely robust, and they are also extremely tailored to our environment and, and honed to very particular arm reaches that will get food to our mouth. A large part of, a large swath of our brain is devoted to thinking about reaching our arm to go grab a berry to then put it back in our mouth. And let's say, uh, you know, there's just so many different ways to go, but let's say, you know, you're reconstituted in a robot or something with effectors. Your, um, so, and, and, and so I guess this kind of relates to embodiment and, you know, the embodied cognition movement these days that's been around for a while. You know, how, yes, you have a very robust brain that can fit various scenarios but it's all in our environment but it's also very tailored to being in our bodies and um reaping reward from reaching to get something to maintain homeostasis or be hedonic or you know however many however different ways you want to take it within our bodies and how robust does it need to be to then be uploaded into a robot or into some software and and we're going to have to get into subjective awareness, you know, eventually with this too. But because really, you want to experience uh, being in the galaxy beyond Mars, and it's because you want those experiences for yourself, right? So, you know, is there a worry that that we have to somehow get the environment right, or some middle ground of programming 
you know, to work with what we have in our brains and what we, how we know that our brains work and constitute our minds to have like a middleman, a middle layer uh, between the way our minds work and the effectors that the robots are going to use that somehow translates between the robust yet very tailored aspects of our, how our brains have been shaped through evolution and how this new environment that they've been put in. I'll open it up to either of you who wants to <laughs> to answer this, because I know that was just a lot of uh, rambling that I just did. I, I have a, uh, uh, a side take on that. Sure. Uh, that's, uh, uh, I'm interested in what Randall has to say about this, but uh, well, let, me, let me just point out something. Uh, if, if my computer broke and I could only recover 90% of the information on the hard drive, is that my same computer? That's a stupid question, right? Nobody would question a computer that way. It would be like, well, you you know, what were the files that were lost? What were the files that were not lost? Mm -hmm. That's the only, there is no further fact about whether it's really your computer or not. When I hear questions about, would it still be you if it isn't embodied? What would the embodiment uh, take uh, in and out? Uh, you know, things like that. The most direct answer is when you say what is being taken out and what is being uh, preserved, you've got the answer. And that's all there is. There is no further fact. And if you're asking for a further fact of, well, is that still you, then you've crossed a philosophical bound that I won't, I won't go. Because right. that is uh, that uh, there, there is no you according to uh, in that folk psychological sense according to what we know about the brain. This hinges on a computational mind, a computational approach to what to mind, right? Um, so this is a kind of functionalist account. Uh, as long as the input, uh, we give the same input and we get the same output, um, whatever's you know across. I disagree with that. I, I that. That is that is, I definitely would not go there because that's uh, saying that uh, as long as somebody if if you replaced my mind with a lookup table mm -hmm. that behaved the same as I do this is actually the information uh, integrated theory uh, integration theory argument against <laughs> against computation by the way uh, if you replace my mind with a lookup table and I behaved the same then it would still be me. No, I completely reject that. Uh, obviously, the the internal mental uh, quality of my life uh, is involved in the internal states as well. But when Randall and I are talking about whole brain emulation, we're not just talking about uh, copying the external behaviors. We're talking about copying at a very fine-grained uh, level the uh, the internal representations and their dynamics as well. Yeah, I, I wasn't meaning input and output as as sensory and and uh, motor out, sensory in, input and motor output. I was I was thinking more in terms of like at the neuronal ensemble level, right? And communicating between each other, the information input and the information output, at whatever level you're uh, you're dealing with at the time. But that's still a computational uh, account of. So assuming that that is right at whatever functional level you care about, what however large you make the black box. If you put enough of these together and they emulate the whole brain, what you're assuming is that the, you know, subjective experience the, c comes with it, right? And and all all I would say to that is that I mean yes, uh, I I personally take the computational uh, account of the brain seriously, 
you know, people will will try to straw man that as a well, you just think that the brain is a computer. Obviously, I don't think that the brain is a computer, but the the it it is it is a statement that what is mattering to the mind is information processing. There is a possibility, I suppose, that that is not true. But I mm. want to point out that if that was not true, then neuroscience as we know it is way off on the wrong track <laughs> because it assumes that completely. And I would mm. argue that you would probably have to dismiss uh, evolution, biological evolution as well. <laughs> uh, the, the minute that you start saying, oh, we're not just functional, uh, you have opened up a can of worms that starts to uh, eat away at our uh, at the scientific knowledge that we've uh, uh, gotten uh, through the ages. Yeah, I think I think that's actually a very important um, different phrase to use as functional um, as opposed to computational, because computational is easily misinterpreted, as Ken already said, as as saying, oh, you know, I think that the brain is a dual core laptop or something like that. Right. That's not computer. what you're trying to say when you say computation, computational. Mm -hmm. What we're saying is, we're, you know, we're materialists and we think of this in a functional sort of, uh, from a functional perspective, a functional philosophical framework. Uh, we are not, we're trying not to be dualist, even though not being dualist is extremely care difficult for uh, yeah. a species yeah, really that, yeah. that has a self model and therefore starts to think in a very homunculus Cartesian theater kind of way. So not being dualist is really hard, and everyone succumbs to it in one way or another, I find. But um, but yeah, that's that's really the basis of it, is, is the functional perspective. Um, but I think that sort of got a little bit off track from what you were saying about the embodiment argument, right? This mm -hmm. is a little different from... Well, well, I mean, they're related because the... the you know, the function, let's say, uh, input-output, whether it's information processing in however large a volume that you want to talk about and however many neurons, or at the whole organism level, you know, all of these things were honed at, through evolution for very specific purposes. And right. like I noticed the other day, j just a few seconds ago, while you were talking, my hand came up and I, I think I put my finger on my chin or something, my cheek, you know, while I was listening to you, uh, completely unconscious of it. But there are all these things that are that are going on that moving my arm with so many degrees of freedom, and it's such a complex thing, even moving my arm, and so much mm -hmm. of my brain activity is devoted to that. Uh, if I am reconstituted and emulated in whatever hardware or, or whatever system, you know, eventually after the scan and copy, or, or, you know, let's just go with the scan and copy for now, the experience, it, even though the brain, our brains are very robust and adaptable, uh, it seems like it could be quite jarring, <laughs> to to say the least, at the beginning, right? So yeah, I don't yeah. know if that gets jarring. Us jarring is always a matter of degrees, of course. Jarring is uh, coming home to my children you, is quite you have jarring. a traumatic experience. Yeah, exactly. It could be, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think the the arm movement to grab the cherries that's still going to come in very handy as a robot grabbing batteries and putting them into your head battery receptacle, that sort of thing. So that'll there'll be a a place for that, um, but uh, more seriously. You're right. Of course, it matters what you build around an emulation like that, whether you have a full range of input and output, whether your sensation is still somewhat intact. Then again, though, I mean, you know, studies with locked-in patients, for instance, don't seem to show that locked-in patients feel generally less human or even more unhappy 
sure. overall than uh, than regular people who are not locked in. So there's quite a lot you can take away and still have sure. what is basically a human mind. Uh, that's not to say that you'd necessarily prefer that. So, but, but it also goes the other way because one of the things that you've, that you mentioned in there is, you know, what would it be like traveling to the stars and this whole other thing because we're adapted to a specific kind of body. So it's not just about taking things away. It's also this idea of maybe adding something unusual, like a different sense or, or input about different things that we're not normally aware of or that, that we don't usually compute. And yes, we are somewhat adaptable. Uh, there have been studies where you, uh, you, you know, you plug in a new type of actuator or some sensation of like magnetism or something like that. And, and you can kind of learn to work with it in some way. Even holding a tennis racket, right? It becomes or even part holding of your body. a tennis racket yeah. or, or, you know, I'm an example I like to give because I, I like kayaking is that when you're sitting in a kayak, it feels like that thing is just part of you. Yeah. It's not like you, like you have legs, you have a kayak. And you kind of just move with that. So we do adapt a lot like that. And I don't know where the boundaries are or exactly how rapidly you can add different things or exchange things. What is the degree of change that's acceptable so that you don't experience a kind of trauma? <laughs> you know, uh, trauma either by losing something or by gaining something. I don't know. Yeah. You guys talk about that a lot. It's just the rate of change. Like what is ex acceptable, you know, in the gradual replacement uh, approach? How quickly, you know, how slowly do we need to replace things to be considered, oh, I'm still myself, I'm still myself, I'm still myself, you know, to, to then eventually be completely replaced and, and, and having the same There are so many identity. questions in that because, I mean, would you even notice? How could you notice? How could you tell? Like, at what point? What is the, what is the, the thing in your brain that is the, the component that somehow makes a judgment that says, this is me, this is not me. Is it a comparison with memory and then saying, I have a memory of what it used to feel like being me and now it feels different? Do we actually have that? I don't even know if we have that. Maybe we have that. Uh, so many open questions there. I don't know. I don't know. But this gets to the point of, of you know, Ken originally saying when you ask a neuroscientist, like we, we know nothing about the brain, but that's because we really know very, I mean, we know a lot. But and and we have our our best theories, you know, the best uh, and and you know scientific knowledge is based on, uh, I think, uh, you know, a bedrock of good factual basis. But there's still so, relative to what there is still to learn. I feel like we're still really early on in the game. I mean, it is a very young science, of course. Well, I think I, I think just one thing I would want to stress is that uh, we take neuroscience very seriously, and I think uh, we are not saying anything that any neuroscientist would uh, strongly disagree with. Yeah. And yet, uh, so the only real difference is that we're, uh, uh, we're allowing ourselves uh, to kind of imagine what the future of neuroscience, what its success would actually bring. That's really the only difference. Yeah. You know, what's funny is actually that when neuroscientists come up with reasons why they don't agree with our our view of the future or what's possible they'll tend to come up with something that to me at least sounds a lot more kind of fringe and not in the sort of uh, middle ground safe conservative consensus neuroscience what do you mean can you, can you give an example maybe or tononi's argument is pretty oh. much in there <laughs> yeah 
or uh, you know, Stuart Hammeroff and microtubules. That's not even. Yeah, come on, come on. I and, can't believe you said microtubules. Come on. <laughs> yeah. So you see what I mean? It's it's like the kind of the counter arguments seem to come from. I mean, when they don't just come from a place of saying we don't know enough, so we shouldn't talk about it. Then it seems to come from inventing. No, I shouldn't say inventing. That's not fair, right? Like coming up with a reason that is, to my mind, far fetched and low on evidence. Yeah, and and there are more reasons of it may not happen or it may not work because of, and and I I know that brain preservation is a is, is a subset of this. It's not the whole deal, but uh, you know. When the argument against brain preservation is it may not work, that's a very hollow argument for a terminal patient to hear. Yeah, they, they, yeah, I agree. I mean, you've stressed this multiple times in other venues, Ken, that someone should have that option. If they're terminally ill, you know, you're laying there, you should have the option, yes, perfuse me, uh, and I'm ready to go, uh, even, even if it's a 0.07% chance that in 700 years. Uh, and I, I would I would go farther than this, that it's not that you should have the option in some kind of abstract sense, like, you know, you have an option to uh, have a heart transplant, but we're going to systematically uh, not have any, um, uh, any hospital do it, any hospital regulated to do it, any uh, research into it. Uh, we're going to make it as hard as you possibly can to get a heart transplant. Uh, you know, that... We wouldn't accept that for heart transplants, uh, and that is exactly what's being asked uh, to be accepted for preservations. So, for instance, a, um, a good friend of mine, uh, a 19-year-old terminal cancer patient, he's sharing his story right now, uh, tweeted about his case and asked, uh, you know, why can't my friend yeah. get a quality brain preservation? And I got absolute silence from the neuroscience community. And I got a whole bunch of people from the cryonics community saying, well, why don't you just go to uh, get chronically preserved? And, and my friend thought about this the same way as I do. Uh, you know, he was like, I don't want to go to an unregulated third party uh, system outside of everything and wait until I'm dead because I have to be dead for a legal purpose so that I can get a crappy uh, uh, preservation. I want the best quality preservation that I can get and I want it within the uh, the existing hospital system and I want my NIH to fund research to make sure that it's uh, done uh, better and better and better. It sounds like a good op market opportunity for uh, some CD joints in Mexico or something to uh, <laughs> to offer these. <laughs> Nothing against Mexico. Another thing I wanted to sort of quickly ask about is you know the use of animal models in in uh, whole brain emulation, and you know the, of course there's the nematode which has its structure completely uh, mapped out. The DNA completely encodes the, the uh, structure of the brain, and you have smaller organisms like Drosophila. You know, are we going to see a functioning fly? you know, hundreds of years before? And I know this is a timeline question, sort of. I want to avoid timelines, but is that a goal to to to, to perform this in an animal model? Uh, of course, the eventual goal is human. So this is where I have to say that uh, it, it actually does make sense to not over-speculate because, um, uh, you know, whereas uh, we are mapping out fruit fly brains, uh, whereas we're mapping out C. elegans and, and things like that, Neuroscience is not ready for the type of comprehensive emulations 
that uh, Randall and I would consider to be an upload. So we will eventually get there. Will it be, uh, you know, a fruit fly first or a mouse first or a C. elegans first? It probably will be not even clear yeah. where that boundary happens. Neuroscience is really about understanding different pieces of the nervous system and how they function. And uh, at the very end of that understanding process, yeah, somebody will emulate uh, a fruit fly. But uh, all the interesting stuff, if you will, may have already happened before that. I, I, I'd love to hear Randall's uh, take on this. I think that's correct. Uh, because everything is a gradual process in science and we're always working on different pieces, this is exactly what you're going to see. You're not going to have a very clear indication of this is when an emulation of a specific animal has happened. It's more like you'll have a slightly okay model of Drosophila visual system first, yeah, and then eventually maybe some other systems or a better model of the visual system of Drosophila, or you'll switch over to human retina or something like that because there's a, a you know a reason to try to build prostheses for people with bad retinas, and and you'll see that kind of thing happening. So all these little steps like that until at some point you just have it all, unless of course you know there's somebody who's just or some group that is very much interested in just putting together this particular project. They absolutely want to get an emulation of C. elegance. Just, you know, thinking of that one because of Open Worm and other projects out there. And so, you know, and then they find all the right people and get all the funding together and they work on it so hard and they've got this plan so they can show all these little steps until they get there. You could set it up that way, but that's not the way that you would expect it to work out if you just, you know, let uh, let everything take its course. And, and if you look at the interesting thing that's uh, some of the interesting projects that uh, Connectomics is tackling, mapping out of the fruit fly brain is really looking at different pathways uh, for navigation, different pathways for olfactory learning. There's some projects that I'm very excited about that are probably going to happen relatively soon in, uh, let's say, bird brain uh, or mouse brain, where uh, you have a known memory, uh, like the bird song, mm -hmm. and uh, you, you know where it's stored because of a whole bunch of other um, uh, uh, experiments that have been done over the years. And so you go in and you uh, map out the circuitry uh, with a particular theory in mind saying, if it works this way, we should be able to read off this memory. We should be able to read off the song that the bird learned. This is, uh, it, will it be an emulation? No, it won't be an emulation in the sense that we consider it, but it will be a extremely concrete piece of evidence that an emulation is eventually possible. And in contrast, it takes a neuroscience theory and puts it to the ultimate test. You, you can't wiggle around it. It's either there or it's not there. Uh, this, is, this is, I think, the current set of neuroscience experiments that we should expect uh, are on that, on that level. Engineering and science for understanding are, are not at odds with each other necessarily, but they are two different things. Do we, how much, I mean, and I know this is an open question, but in your opinion, how much do we need to understand brains? How much do we under, need to understand minds and, and what is a mind and how brains and minds are related? How much is understanding part of this picture? Uh, Randall, let's start with you. 
Yeah, I think I may have uh, shifted my views on that a bit over time as I understand more. As you understand more. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but but also about the practical problem of how would you get from where we are to where you can do whole rate emulation and just looking at it in that sense. You know, in the past, I might have emphasized more that the idea behind whole brain emulation is precisely that you don't need to know everything about the brain as long as you know how the underlying mechanisms work. Uh, if you can scan enough and you can put those mechanisms together, then you're going to end up with a working brain. That's a bit naive because it presumes that we collect data correctly, that we collect the right data, that we know how to transform that data to the parameters we use in the model, that we're using the right model, all this kind of stuff, right? And all these questions that I just mentioned, they all require testing. And so validation is a huge issue. Hmm. And, and that's where the understanding of the brain comes in. Because if you want to validate that your, uh, that at least the model you've built works like a human hippocampus, then you need to have a fairly good understanding of how a human hippocampus works. Then you can see whether your system even fits within that boundary, uh, that those boundaries before you can even say, is this Steve's hippocampus, right? So I would still say that the thing that whole brain emulation kind of holds as a, as a sort of a, a tenet is that we don't need to understand everything about Steve to be able to make a whole brain emulation of Steve. We need to understand a heck of a lot about human brains mm -hmm. so that we can build a testable model of a human brain that will then house Steve. But we can collect the data about Steve that makes that personalized and tuned to be Steve. So there's this, we need to understand a lot about the brain, but in the context of how brains work, not how Steve's brain works. That's where you would then be taking the data and, and well, of course, you need to know a lot about that transformation of what makes it Steve's brain in this particular case. But I think you get my point, right? Yeah, this is almost opposite to current, the way that current AI views this and, and even current computational accounts view it, that it really mechanism, underlying mechanism doesn't matter. Structure, function, mechanism, brain. Why, why brain? Why brains? It's all algorithms. It's all solving computational problems, the functions and which are implemented uh, via algorithms, and it doesn't matter what substrate you run the algorithms on, which, of course, you know, a substrate-independent mind um, would would hearken uh, to that as, as well. So, I don't know. Are, are those two at odds, do you think? They're not really at odds. Um, it's a different purpose, a different goal, right? Um, I think that the idea that you can do a whole brain emulation at all, it means that it, there needs to be a kind of substrate independence or platform independence. That's what you'd see in AI as well. And that you need to be able to come come to at least some lowest level algorithms that you can then use in a replicated way or where you just add in the right parameters. So in that sense, it's like AI. But there will be many more variants of algorithms that you're going to use to produce the system that you want. Because you're trying to build something that came out of a patchwork that, you know, evolved over time and that isn't based on just a single resource with a single algorithm doing a single thing as what you would see in narrow AI today. Now, I'm not saying that this means we would never be able to build a whole brain emulation where you can abstract away more. I think that may very well be possible. It may, be, it may well be that we discover that we only need to emulate uh, the behavior of populations of a certain size to a certain degree and then everything's fine. And that way you can be, get much closer to what we today would call the type of algorithm you'd see in AI. 
So I'm not saying that, but it is different in that sense because we're trying to build Steve's brain. We're not trying to build a de novo artificial intelligence yeah. that is good at solving this kind of problem, which is a different kind of question. But you know, you can see in AI that as you get into a situation where where your your problems are more complex, where the context is much more complex, so you need to have an AI say that can live in the real world and drive around and find its way and understand traffic situations and all sorts of stuff like that, that you can no longer make do with just a single algorithm doing a single thing. You have to add in all kinds of pieces, different senses and different parts that compute different solutions and maybe use entirely different algorithms for it. So it begins to look a bit more like a brain, although perhaps not a human brain, right? Not Steve. I mean, I think we can, I think we can already kind of make this discussion a little bit more concrete. The deep learning neural networks uh, that people use for recognizing objects, those are very similar. There's a lot of papers now that compare directly the types of responses that you get uh, from a deep learning neural network with the uh, ventral visual stream of, uh, of a monkey, for example. It, it is certainly not a perfect uh, analogy, but it is... Um, probably giving us the main core issue. So so the the current experiments that people are going to do are going to be uh you know given that we've recorded this particular mouse uh, brain's uh optical um uh optic lobe uh can we uh use the connectivity to predict uh that this particular neuron likes a 45 degree bar moving in this direction. Okay, they've already done experiments like that. So it's 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 like yes, they can do that from connectivity. Many decades of more refined experiments will uh be able to figure out what the classes of neurons are, how it interacts with the whole system, what the real synapses are that you should be looking at, how to interpret them. And at the end of the day, you will be able to take all of that information in a particular Steve's brain, let's say, or a particular mouse, and from the connectivity of that uh, visual system, be able to say when the uh, when the mouse looked at this picture of cheese, these were this was the neuronal ensemble that would have been firing to signal to the rest of the brain what it was uh, what it was seeing. And so I, I think I think eventually we will de be decoding particular brains that way, and we will and it will be very similar to how we think about uh, deep learning neural networks today, but we're certainly very far from doing that uh, uh, today. And there's a lot of complexity that goes beyond just a simple, uh, you know, layered deep learning network uh, that people use. Maybe we can just end on it because we only have just a couple minutes here. Uh, you guys have a lot to think about in, in projects th this size. What What is currently on your mind in terms of what you see as in the immediate term, not not far term, not intermediate term, but really like what you're thinking about now that feels like a bottleneck in the current hurdle. Uh, yeah, luckily that seems to have shifted a bit over the last 10, 12 years uh, in the sense that I, I used to think that scanning was going to be a huge bottleneck. Um, and it's still probably a big bottleneck, but not as big as it was. The biggest bottleneck that I see right now is uh, is the transformation the transformation from the data you collect to a model that works. <laughs> because the examples for that are whew, 
really few and very tiny that hardly exists. Most functional models are are just uh, sort of theoretical experiments, so they don't use any data at all. Or they are pretty rudimentary and using some in vivo recording data, try to replicate uh, some very limited uh, duration and number of, of uh, you know active states that you see. There's nothing like taking um, you know an, an electron microscope reconstruction of a piece of brain tissue and then converting it into a model that shows how that piece of brain tissue was supposed to work. That just doesn't exist yet. And to me, that is uh, that is the fundamental, most difficult thing right now. That's really the thing I'd love everyone to be studying if they could. What do you? What, what say you, Ken? Well, I, I I completely agree with Randall on that. I think from a from a neuroscience perspective, that is where neuroscience is trying to go. We've finally gotten the tools to uh, map neural connectivity over large scales. And now we need to use those tools to uh, really test the models that we have and and push them forward. I, I would say that I think, uh, I think neuroscience is doing just fine. It is cranking along with, you know, fantastic tools, uh, you know, optogenetics and uh, uh, calcium imaging and connectomics. Uh, these are, are, are just really making good, solid progress uh, toward understanding, really real understanding. From that perspective, we just need to keep doing what we're doing. From a more meta perspective, I just kind of wish that more people in the neuroscience community would uh, open their minds up to uh, what success will eventually look like. Mm -hmm. It's going to take decades and decades and decades. Nobody's doubting that. But uh, we should be debating uh, what the long-term impact of a successful neuroscience will be for humanity. So I had Steve Potter on uh, recently, and he I, I told him that I was going to be talking with you guys soon, and he literally applauded uh, while we were. T- I'm not sure if it it's I'm not sure if it came through in the podcast. It hasn't been released yet, but but I um, I'm glad I had you guys on. I, I applaud you. I applaud both of your efforts. I mean, this is just really fun stuff. And the, my only disappointment is that we didn't have another couple hours here to talk. So continued success, and um, I really appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Brain Inspired is a production of me and you. I don't do advertisements. You can support the show through Patreon for a trifling amount and get access to the full versions of all the episodes, plus bonus episodes that focus more on the cultural side but still have science. Go to braininspired.co and find the red Patreon button there. To get in touch with me, email paul at braininspired.co. The music you hear is by The New Year. Find them at thenewyear.net. Thank you for your support. See you next time. The stair-